are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How are you? Happy Mother's Day to uh, all the moms here. Um, It's hard to quantify uh, in my own life how much of an impact the moms in my life have had on me and my family. And so I'm so grateful for today for just, I hope you celebrate moms every day. Um, but today specifically, if you've gotten other 364 days of the week or year to celebrate moms, I hope today you do. Um, but I'm grateful to be with you. We are entering into the second week of our new sermon series uh, called Reset. Last week, we really set the foundation for the next 13 weeks, going to carry us through the end of July, as we reminded ourselves from God's word about the gospel, what the gospel is. And I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you missed it. But I think it's really important to remind us just here at the outset of our time entering into this week that uh, we are not moving beyond the gospel. It's not like last week we talked about the gospel and we got it, and now we're moving on to other things. But what we're actually doing is we're going deeper into the gospel. What we're going to start to see over the next 13 weeks are the effects of the gospel. Belief in the gospel produces things in us individually, in us corporately. And so that's what we're going to be diving into. And so today, one of the first effects of the gospel that we see in the scriptures, a belief in Christ, is something called the church. And the church, this new entity made up of redeemed people, uh, redeemed by Christ, set free by the grace of God in him, from our former bondage to sin and death, now constituting this new entity of people that demonstrates corporately to the world how lives lived in the kingdom of Christ should be lived out. The church is called a lot of things throughout the New Testament. It's called the communion of saints. It's called the household of God, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God, the living temple where God's spirit dwells, the flock of God. I mean, on and on we could go with all these metaphors of the church. But one of the things all of these metaphors have in common is they all involve people, right? You know what I mean by that is oftentimes we reduce down this idea we have of the church to a place of brick and mortar, to a location with an address and physical dimensions. But the New Testament describes the church as a people, Not a building, not a place we come meet, but the church is here in us. When we are meet together, regardless of where we are, the church is together. The church is us. We are the church. Now, thank God for this building, but that's just exactly what it is. It's a building. 
Uh, the Spirit of God doesn't reside within these walls Monday through Saturday, just waiting for us to come back on Sunday to praise Him. He's not up here strumming Cody's guitar, just singing songs to himself, just waiting for us to come back to bring praise to His name. That's not what's happening. The Spirit of God resides within the people of God, resides within each of us individually and then collectively together, resides when we gather together. Now, there are some nuances to that, and I get that. It's a very simple definition of the church. Um, but because I, I do believe that when believers gather together, the Spirit is among us, that we do constitute the church. And obviously, there is a call for order and oversight and care organizationally, right, to a church. Buildings are very useful for a variety of things. I mean, we're here together in this building, praising God together. It's a meeting space for us. It's an amazing thing. But what we see here in Acts chapter 2 are changed people looking for other changed people and demonstrating to the surrounding world what life within this new identity of people is called the church. So I want to pray together, and then I want us to unpack these five verses here at the beginning, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 2. Let's pray together. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. Speak to us now through your word. Change us, convict us, constrain us to one another as you have constrained yourself to us. So, Father, I pray that you change us today in hearing of your word. Be gracious to us and merciful to us for the building up of us and for the glory of your name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Your joy is not full until your joy is shared. Your joy is not full until your joy is shared. Uh, in 2009, Christine and I had just gotten married. And we made the wise, just wise move to spend the first summer of our married life working our tails off for a summer camp, all right? And lots of pros and cons to that decision, lots of cons, maybe more than the pros. But our decision drove us one week to Wheaton College outside of Chicago, Illinois, suburb of Chicago, for the week of July 23rd, 2009. July 23rd, 2009 was a, a day like any other, that grueling summer with one exception, the team I oversaw that camp year, camp summer, seven individuals, we had the afternoon off, the only afternoon off we'd had all summer, we had it during that week on July the 23rd, 2009. An afternoon off in the outskirts of Chicago with nothing but opportunity and exploration in front of us. So I did what every red-blooded American male does on an afternoon in the middle of the summer in Chicago, Illinois, I looked at baseball schedules, all right? Our Cubs, White Sox, like, is anybody here this week? And does anybody have a day game? Particularly on Thursday afternoon, July 23rd, 2009. Sure enough, Chicago White Sox had a day game, 1.05 p.m. The afternoon we were off, they were playing the Tampa Bay Rays. And so I approached my team, hey, hey do you all want to go see a baseball game? And five of the seven had the right mind, and they said, of course. Um, the other two were losers and completely regretted their decision as they get to the end of the story. So we take the train into the south side of Chicago. We get off the train, walk to the ticket office outside of the stadium, and realize quickly that tickets are actually way more than we originally anticipated. And so we have this dialogue. I mean, none of us have any money. Uh, we have this dialogue. Do we need to pay for this and go, or do we do something else? And we decided we're already here. Let's just buy tickets. Let's go to the game. So we walked into the nosebleed section in the middle of the first inning, and the pitching matchup that day was between Scott Cashmere for the race and Mark Burley for the Chicago White Sox. Not two, not aces by any stretch of the imagination, just two pretty good, decent pitchers. 
So I grab a brat, because that's what you do in Chicago at a baseball game. You sit down, and I watch the game. White Sox jump out to a quick lead, very quick. Mark Burley pitching for the White Sox, pitching a great game. First, second, third, fourth, fifth innings roll by, and I noticed something at that moment that I hadn't noticed before, and it's that Mark Burley hasn't given up a hit. In fact, Mark Burley up to that point had not given up any runner on base at all. He hadn't walked anyone. He hadn't hit anybody with a pitch. No Tampa Bay batter had reached base safely at that point against Mark Burley. Now, there's something in baseball called a perfect game. Perfect game is where a pitcher allows no one from the opposing team to reach base in any capacity. No walk, no hit batter, anyway, no hit, nothing, nothing. It's one of the most difficult and elusive achievements in baseball. On July 23rd, 2009, up to that point, there had been 17 perfect games in the history of baseball. So 17 perfect games since 1876. Now, since 1876, I did some math. At that point in 2009, 202,462 baseball games had been played. 17 perfect games. That's 0.0000839% of games had been perfect. Sixth inning comes and goes, still perfect. Seventh inning comes and goes, still perfect. Eighth inning, perfect. Three batters left for Mark Burley to get out to achieve the near impossible. And I'm sitting there, like, I'm in Chicago, Illinois, like, watching this happen. Like, what are the odds? I mean, factor in those odds of some guy who goes to one game, maybe every three years of baseball, and he's there. I'm sitting right there watching this thing. But I'm with these guys with me, and we're not even saying the words perfect game. You don't talk about a perfect game. We aren't talking about it, all right? So nobody's saying anything. We're just kind of looking at each other, like, giving these looks to each other, like, mm, like, mm, it's happening. Um, the top of the ninth inning, stadium is just, I mean, on fire. Everybody's just praying to God that we don't get this close and blow it at this point. And this guy comes up for the Tampa Bay Rays named Gabe Kapler. He's a seven-hitter for the Rays, and Burley pitches it, and Kapler just hits a missile. I mean, it's going out. It's out of the park. Left center field, heading out of the park. And for about five seconds, just complete and utter despair just runs through my mind, all right? Perfect game gone, no hitter gone, shutout gone, experience gone, story gone. It's all gone, all right? In just the blink of an eye, it's all gone. But out of the utter despair, a just subbed in center fielder named Dwayne Wise is sprinting to the wall. And he's going up, he's looking up, tracking the ball, and Dwayne Wise jumps on the wall, gets his glove up, brushes the ball enough to keep it in the park, and as he is falling down on the ground, the ball is rolling around on his chest. He grabs it, holds it up in victory, and saves the perfect game. All right? Burley gets out, the next two batters. I mean, my friends and I lose our minds. We actually start talking to each other again, which we hadn't talked to each other since the fifth inning. Joy in my heart, just overflowing, absolutely incredible. I had seen a perfect game, the 18th in the history of baseball. I was there. You know the first thing I did when I got out of the stadium? I called everybody I knew. <laughs> I tweeted about it. I'm not on social media anymore, but I was then. I tweeted about it. I turned on SportsCenter to watch them talk about it. I read every article about it. I tried to do everything I could to make it public, to share in it with other people that either were there or weren't there, because our joy is not full until our joy is shared. 
And this is true in every situation in life. Every piece of uh, every, every piece of good news we receive, whether it's something as trivial as a perfect game of baseball or something as significant as somebody getting pregnant, first thing we want to do is we want to share that. We want to tell somebody about it. You know, unshared joy has a ceiling. So we share it to break through that ceiling. So in the book of Acts, Jesus has just ascended to the Father. In Acts chapter 1, he tells his followers to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and they do just that. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends upon about 120 believers meeting together. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stands up on the day of Pentecost to speak feast to the Jews, and he preaches the first Christian sermon. 3,000 people, one day, come to know Christ. 3,000 saved. So just imagine you're one of these 3,000 people. You've traveled to Jerusalem for this feast uh, from maybe another city or town or region. And you hear this guy get up and preach about Jesus as the Messiah. You've been waiting for this Messiah to come. You hear this preached word about this Messiah. You hear Peter say that to be saved from from the wrath of God, you need to believe that Christ is the Savior. Believe, be baptized in response to that. And you say, yeah. I believe that. I believe that. You're filled with the Spirit. You're surrounded by thousands upon thousands of people. In this decision you've just made, this experience you've just experienced, what's the first thing you're probably seeking to do? You're looking for somebody that's just had the same experience as you, and you're going, this just happened to me. Did this just happen to you? Yeah, it happened to you? Okay, what do we do now? What what do we do? And you said, I don't know. Let's get together and let's talk about it. It happened to you, it happened to me. Let's just begin meeting together, hanging out together, talking about these things. So right after these 3,000 people are saved in Acts 2, 41, between verses 41 and 42, immediately they begin to meet together, right? New people, all with a shared experience, begin doing life together because joy is not full until joy is shared. So what marked these people? What was it? What were some distinguishing factors about these people as they met together? Well, first, the church was marked by devotion. It was marked by devotion. <clears throat> but before we discuss what the church was devoted to, let's actually back up a second. And it's important to note, as we talked about last week, and we're going to reiterate this week, that before devoting themselves to one another... God had devoted himself to them, to their good. And this is the gospel, right? It's what we talked about. God never asks his people to embark in a work he does not give the strength to accomplish. The bedrock, the foundation of our hope, the hope of our devotion to the building up and the good of one another is the fact that God has devoted himself to us and to our building up and our good, right? As we briefly hit on before, Jesus tells his followers to wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. They obey. The Holy Spirit comes. Jesus fulfills his word to them, sends the Spirit, fills them up. Peter says as much in Acts 2.33, if you want to look at that real quick. Peter's preaching. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So God exalted Jesus to his right hand to reign and to rule. God gave the Son the same authority to send the Spirit that the Father possessed. And so from the Father and the Son, Jesus sends the Spirit to indwell his people. 
Jesus promised in John 16 that when he left, he wouldn't leave his people as orphans, right? But he would come to them via the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus devotes himself through the Spirit to the community of his people for their good and for his glory. Without the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit, this type of community described here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, would be impossible, would be inconceivable, could not be accomplished. John Stott said it like this. He said, There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. So as we look at what the church had devoted themselves to here in these verses, we're to know and understand and remember that fruit will be produced through our devotion to one another because God has first devoted himself to us. So four things, four things here in our text the early church devoted themselves to. And by the way, this, this church is not perfect, all right? I, I can't tell you how many times I hear, if we just get back to Acts chapter 2, things are going to be great. Come on, man. Like, keep reading a little bit. Read these epistles. This church is, is this church messed up, all right? They got a lot of issues going on. So there's no perfect church. Kill that idea in your mind, all right? It needs to die. There is no perfect church. There's no ideal community. But we are broken people being redeemed in Christ, working together, being sanctified together for the glory of God and his kingdom to advance in this city and in the world, all right? So we need to eliminate this idea of a perfect church, okay? That's a side note. Sorry, didn't mean to go off on that. But we need to keep it in our minds. So four things, all right, four things. First, they're devoted to the word of God. They're devoted to the word of God. Verse 42, the apostles' teaching is what they're devoted to. So what it's taken two forms. Teaching the apostles regarding Christ is the Fulfillment of all things Old Testament. The apostles are unpacking that for the early church. And then second, the instruction from the men who walked with Jesus the entirety of his three years of ministry in Israel. This newly formed community of people are eager and willing to bring their lives into conformity to the teaching of Christ, how he taught them how to live. You know, the Bible, the, the whole counsel of God, you know, not just the things we like, but the whole thing, all right? From cover to cover, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, these words tell the story of God's creation, his pursuit, his redemption, and his restoration of a broken people. It tells us of the heart of our great God, how much he loved us, he loved his glory, that he sent his son to die for us. You know, it's how we know how to honor him and please him according to his holiness. It's how it teaches us how to live our lives in conformity with how he desires for us to live our lives. Every jot and tittle of this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit and filled with words that point us to the life giver for our weary souls. You know, to know the heart and purpose and will of God is to know the words of this book. That's why each Sunday when you come to Emmanuel Church, you're going to see this book opened up. You're going to hear this book sung. You're going to hear this book read. You're going to hear this book prayed. You know, Christ has the words of life. And Christ has spoken all of these words into existence. You know, I mentioned this already, but for seven weeks, beginning June 5th, anybody's invited to come to, we're going to teach an equipped class upstairs at 9.15 on Sunday mornings. 
We'll have actually our kids. We're going to do kids choir during that time. So you have kids, you can drop them off three and up. We're going to learn how to study the Bible. All right. Come be a part of that. 9.15 to 10.15 an hour. Love for you to be there and learn just the treasures that this book holds. Seven, seven weeks. All right. So we're not going to get like everything down. Um, not that we would get everything down in 77 years, but we're going to do what we can to equip one another to be able to come to this book and feast on the words of Jesus on a day-to-day basis. So I encourage you to be a part of that. June 5th, starting June 5th. So the church, the early church, devoted themselves to the word of God, which we will as well, church. And then second, the early church devoted themselves to the good of one another, to the good of one another. The fellowship, the koinonia in the Greek, the, a word that literally means shared or common. And you see here in the text the type of sharing community that existed here. I mean, first you see that they shared in the relationship to God himself, right? I mean, 1 John 1.3, John writes to the church, he says, We write these things to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, our koinonia, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So we share in this common relationship that we each have to the living God, the living Trinitarian God of the universe. And secondly, we also share our material possessions with one another. You see this in verses 44 and 46. The church had all things in common. They were selling their stuff and distributing it, distributing it, that's distribute, I can't say that, you know what I'm saying, to those who had need. Now, this isn't early communism, which I've heard argued by a variety of people in a variety of ways. Uh, For starters, it's not mandated by the government. That's a big deal. Um, It's strictly voluntary. And then second, as you see in verse 46, not everybody sold everything because clearly people owned houses. All right? They met in homes that were owned by people. So this isn't a picture of that. But the point is this community of believers that truly were for meeting the, were truly together and for meeting the needs of one another as those needs arose. For joy is not full until joy is shared. Joy undergirds their willing sacrifice of all things for the good of one another. Verse 46, with glad and generous hearts, they're doing all these things. Verse 47, praising God. You know, I found that in the Christian life, <coughs> it's not difficult for us to mourn with those who mourn or to grieve with those who grieve or to suffer with those who suffer. But I found that the harder part is actually to rejoice with those who rejoice, to celebrate with those who celebrate. I think about today, Mother's Day. Mother's Day is a time of celebration for some. It's a time of great grief and mourning for others. You know, when Christine and I were going through the adoption process, we were in the throes of it all with another couple from our church. Um, This other couple became very good friends of ours throughout the entire process, and we had a lot of the same sufferings. We both struggled through infertility. We both have been in the process for a long, long time. We were going through the same agency, which was a story of suffering in and of itself. Um, Many prayers were prayed by them for Christine and I, as many prayers were prayed by us for them. We encouraged one another on a regular basis. We prayed together. We just grew really close. And the church and the staff at Johnson Ferry, they, they knew we were both in the middle of this adoption process, and they really rallied around each of us to, to support us and pray for us and to give towards our adoption. 
There came a moment in our adoption journey in Monte Christine's where a birth mother had narrowed down the list of waiting families to three. Out of the 27 waiting families that were waiting for a baby, she had whittled it down to three, and we were one of the three. Hopes high, expectations off the charts. This has been, at that point, this has been the closest we had gotten to being matched to that point. So we waited all weekend for the call. We truly believed that, that this, was, this was it. It was finally going to work out. But the first call I actually received was from the husband of our friends. And he proceeded to tell me that the birth mother had picked them to be the family of their baby. He had no idea we were another family waiting for that same baby. And it clicked in my mind that they were one of the other two couples waiting for that baby. And they got picked. And we got overlooked. Once again, in that moment, Christine and I had a decision to make. We had wept with our friends. We had mourned with our friends. We had suffered with our friends. But can we now rejoice with them when the very thing they received is truly what our hearts desired? Could we set aside our personal desires and ambitions and truly pray for the good of someone who may want the very thing that our hearts crave. <laughs> I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. I'd be lying to you if I said there weren't days of envy rather than thanksgiving. But hindsight being 2020, the Lord was completely right and good in his plans for them and in his plans for us. I can't imagine life without Riley. I can't. But can we, church, truly be for the common good of one another, even when the common good may cause us pain? So that being said, today, it's Mother's Day, let's be both. There are many here with loss and longing. Let's grieve with them together. And for those celebrating today, let's truly celebrate with them together. And I'm not telling you to ignore hard feelings. I'm not telling you to suppress how you feel and slap a smile on your face when others celebrate something you haven't experienced yet. I'm just simply asking us to trust that God's big enough and good enough to create space in our hearts to celebrate even in the face of grief. Third, third. The early church was devoted to intimacy with one another. Intimacy with one another. The breaking of bread. This is obviously a reference to observing the Lord's Supper, communion together, regularly coming to the table, which we seek to do every single week here at Emmanuel. It's also a reference to the intimacy of having someone in your home, sharing a meal together around tables, you know, metaphorical or literal tables. An intimate community of faith eats together because gathering around the table communicates to those gathered that they belong to one another. You know, we as human beings, we have an innate desire to belong, do we not? We need to belong to a group or belong to someone else. Individuals adrift with no community identity tend to be individuals with higher rates of loneliness and depression and anxiety, even suicide. We were made to belong. And there's something intimate and significant about a table. You know, there's nothing more a part of the human experience than a table, Right? I mean, tables, some form of a table has been around since the beginning of time. I mean, think about your own table. You can see it, you can smell it, 
makes a sound when you knock on it. Think about those that sit around your table. You can see their faces and hear their voices. You know their stories. Your tables communicate places of belonging and of fellowship, of, of family. Places of knowledge and invitation, of joy and of kindness. You know, isn't it amazing that one of the two ordinances of the church, the Lord's Supper, is coming to a table? A family meal that Christ has ordained for us. Because when we come take the Lord's Supper, we're communicating to one another that we belong to each other as we belong to Jesus Christ. And he belongs to us. So when we come break bread by coming to the table, communion each week, or we break bread together in our homes, let's be reminded that we belong to one another. As you break bread in your homes together, be reminded that those you're breaking bread with, you belong to them and they to you. There's an intimacy there as you gather around your tables. You know, we're going to start eating a lot more around here, Emmanuel. <coughs> Amen. A couple of ways it's going to look in the near future. Every fifth Sunday we have, except for May because it's Memorial Day weekend, but starting in July, every fifth Sunday after church, we're going to eat together. More details on that to come. We're going to eat together. Every members meeting, which we're going to rename family gatherings, every family gathering we have. Next one's in June, June the 25th, 6th, whatever that Sunday is. We're going to eat together. We're going to break bread together because we belong to each other because of Christ. We're going to eat together and develop intimacy with one another. More info on that. More info on that closer to time. So get ready to eat. All right, get ready to eat. And then we'll start workout programs later. <laughs> they're, devoted, they're devoted to the word of God. They're devoted to the good of each other. Devoted to the breaking bread together. And fourth, they're devoted to praying with one another. Praying with one another. Not going to spend too much time here because we're going to spend a week on prayer. But the prayers right here, verse 42, devoted themselves to the prayers. Probably referring to praying the Psalms together. But they interceded for one another. They would take one another's concerns before the Lord in prayer and wait for him to act. You know, praying for one another is one of the most important things we can do for each other. Prayer expresses our dependence upon the Lord. Reminds us that we're not in as much control as we like to think we are on a day-to-day -day basis. That there are things we cannot do. We are mortal people. When we pray for one another, we're not just resorting to a fallback plan when other methods and means don't work, but it's the starting point. It's where we start. We're resorting to appealing to the provider of all things to do what's best in that situation. And remember, remember, because of Christ, God is for our good and he's for his glory. Those two things go hand in hand. Whatever brings him most glory is whatever's going to bring us most good. He knows what's best for us. And so anytime we come to, to pray before him, we need to understand that whatever he chooses to give us or not give us is to form us and make us more into the image of his son, Jesus. That is our ultimate good, Christ-likeness. And it will bring him great glory. We desire together for God to shape us in that way and we trust him to do what's best even when it's not exactly what we want. So the early church devoted to these things. They were devoted and we too will devote ourselves to these things as well as a church. But what was happening as they were devoted to these things? What was God doing? Well, God was moving. He was moving. And the first way he was moving is the church witnessed the supernatural. All right, verse 43. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. God was confirming the teaching of the apostles through signs and wonders, as he does all throughout Acts. And the church had this sense of, this sense of awe, of reverence, of fear even, at what God was doing, knowing that he was in their midst. Will the Lord do miraculous things among us, Emmanuel Church? Man, I hope so. I hope it freaks us out. I hope there aren't categories for stuff God does around here, all right? Theological categories in my own mind where I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I hope that happens, all right? I hope that happens. My hope and prayer for our church is that we will be a people always in awe of the ways God is working among us. May we never get complacent. May we never get bored. May we never not expect God to move. May this never feel like routine, just rote going through the motions. May that never be said of us. But may we always live our lives in wonder and anticipation of what God is going to do among us. The second thing God is doing as they're devoting themselves to these things, the church is experiencing joy-filled affection. Joy-filled affection. Through all of this, verse 46, I alluded to it before, they had glad and generous hearts. Praising God, verse 47, the fellowship they shared with the Trinitarian God and the fellowship they shared with one another filled them with joy and affection. I mean, this is what we're talking about, this whole sermon. Your joy is not full until your joy is shared. Joy is produced by the Spirit, and then the Spirit produces joy in others by you sharing in that joy. All right? So why when God's doing something in you and among you and through you, tell somebody. Tell us. We want to hear about it. Don't rob the body of joy, Christian, by hoarding it to yourself. Share it. Share the joy that is in you so that we can rejoice and have joy as well. Be selfless in that. Selfless in sharing joy. That's what we need to be about, church. And God will produce in us through the Spirit growing affections for Him that will then produce in us through the Spirit growing affections for one another. We will love each other as we share in each other's joys. And then last, the church grew daily with new believers. The church grew daily with new believers. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. It doesn't say, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were coming from other churches, right? I mean, that's great. Praise the Lord. There's nothing inherently wrong in coming from another church. But these are new believers, new converts, new people that were once walking in death, now walking in life. And there's two things that I just want to point out here <coughs> real quick. First, there's nothing explicit here about sharing the gospel, Right? Now, was gospel sharing happening? I'm sure it was, right? You got to explain the gospel at some point in time to somebody. But there's nothing explicit here that says the church was out evangelizing people. But the focus here is on men and women coming to know Christ through watching the church be the church and loving one another. Watching this devotion take place, which implies they're close to you, right? They're in your homes. They're gathering with you. They're regularly seeing you interact with your spouse and your children and your neighbors and your community here at Emmanuel Church. 
And they are drawn to the community of faith through watching us interact with each other. Watching us be devoted and marked by these things. The selflessness that exists within the body for each other. I mean, that's how Jesus said it, right? John 13, 35. They will know you're my disciples by how you love one another, right? So we're going to love each other. And then second, second observation. The main focus here of these conversions seems to be happening in homes. Yeah, they attended the temple, broke bread in homes, but the main focus of these five verses tends to be on the home. So we need to have people in our homes extending hospitality to them, gospel hospitality to our neighbors, coworkers, family members that may or may not know Christ. That's the focus. So church, God has devoted himself to us. And we will continue by his grace to devote ourselves to him and to one another. And our joy is not full until our joy is shared, Emmanuel Church. And so we will live sharing joy with each other along this Christian life. And as we live lives in this world full of devotion, we're going to sit back and watch God work wonders among us. All right? So let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your generous outpouring of yourself in and through us at this church. Jesus, you did not leave us as orphans, but you sent your spirit to indwell us and remind us that we have a father, that we have a brother in Jesus Christ, that God does dwell among us, that we are devoted to each other as you have devoted yourself to us. And so I pray, oh God, I pray that the world will see a community of faith here at Emmanuel Church that is distinctly marked by joy, It's distinctly marked by your word, that's distinctly marked by hospitality, by selflessness, by giving up of ourselves for the good of each other, May they see that we are distinctly marked as your people through the ways we treat each other. Father, give us the grace to think of others as better than ourselves. Give us the grace to put aside our own ambitions and desires to serve one another. Just as Christ has served us, may we serve one another. Thank you for Christianity being exponentially more than a bunch of rules and regulations, but it is the source of our joy. Christ is the source of our unceasing joy. We love you, Father. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.